Hi all! This is a bonus episode coming out on the Physical Attraction feed. The topic is even less related to physics than usual, but since it's extra and bonus and all this sort of thing, I hope you'll forgive me. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, this wasn't the first podcast I ever made. In fact, I scripted and recorded about 20 episodes of a show, Autocracy Now, on historical dictators, including Commodus, Stalin, and Huey P. Long, who you may not have heard of, but who is an American Southern demagogue from Louisiana. Just fascinating stories there. It's not something that I'm an expert in, just something that I really, really love reading about. But then I started the physics show, and it became clear to me that it would be impossible to juggle writing, recording, scripting, and funding two podcasts a week, and doing my PhD in physics, and writing for Singularity Hub and other websites to supplement the meagre income you get for doing a PhD. But I still had all of these episodes recorded, with no idea when to release them, and they were just gradually gathering dust in a corner of my hard drive, and it took me months of effort to research and record them all. So I've decided that now I will start to release them on a bi-weekly basis, via the Autocracy Now feed. You can subscribe to that feed by searching for Autocracy Now, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, and via www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. That's the website to visit for that feed. By the time the last episode comes out, in 19, if anything, I think I'm only going to be busier at that point, so I don't know if the show will be able to continue beyond that point. We'll have to see what happens. But I hope you enjoy the sister podcast while it lasts, and Physical Attraction will keep going for some time to come yet. To save time, I'll put out any episodes, updates, concerning either show on this main feed, but for the rest of the Autocracy Now episodes, subscribe to that feed. Okay. Two bonus episodes. The first is about the Roman Emperor Commodus. The second is the first in what became a 14-part epic series on the life of Soviet dictator and mass-murdering tyrant Stalin. I hope you enjoy them, and if you do, subscribe to Autocracy now as well. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, www.physicspodcast.com. You can always contact me there, and it's great to hear from you guys. Okay, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now, the podcast about the lives of autocratic rulers throughout history. This episode, we deal with the autocrat who first inspired me to create the show, the Roman Emperor Commodus. I think Commodus is a really a classic example of the perils of handing absolute power to one person, especially when that person isn't really interested in exercising it well or in Commodus's case, exercising power at all. He inherited the responsibility of running an empire that contained around 40 million people. At the time, that was somewhere close to 20% of the world's population. The empire stretched across almost the entire known world, from freezing cold Yorkshire on the island of Britannia, down through Egypt in the south, to Mesopotamia in the east and the borders of modern-day Iraq. This empire contained the entire coastline of the Mediterranean, so that the Romans called it Mare Nostrum, or Our Sea. It held roughly the same territory for more than a hundred years. The Romans were just coming off the back of good emperors, whose reigns were marked generally by internal and external peace, prosperity and stability. For a long time, this era of the empire was considered a high watermark not just of Roman civilization, but of human civilization in general. 
Such a colossal empire would today be a nightmare to administer. I mean, just look at the troubles they're having keeping Europe together in the modern era. And all of this took place in an age when communication was no faster than the speed of a horse. The empire was constantly under attack, from the Parthian Empire in the east, the Picts and Scots behind Hadrian's Wall, and most of all the stream of Germanic invaders that were just itching to pour over the Rhine and Danube rivers, the natural frontiers of the empire, to plunder the wealth of the interior provinces. Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher-emperor, who had mixed military campaigning by day with philosophical musings in his tent by night, had been fighting the Germanic tribes for years. On top of everything, when Commodus came to power, the vast Antonine plague had been raging for years. This plague is estimated to have killed five million people. Just imagine that. Now that's one in eight people dying on average, and in some urban areas up to a third of the population was killed. If this happened in the modern era, we'd probably think it was the apocalypse. I mean, one in three people dying? In fact, the plague was so terrible that as Marcus lay dying, he reportedly said, Weep not for me, think rather of the pestilence and the deaths of so many others. Some historians have theorised that the plague was also responsible for Marcus's demise. I'll shed a tear for him, if only because the image of this bookish, introverted, philosophical character struggling to persuade himself to lead a vast army in the frozen north of Empire while his library waited back home reminds me of having to do compulsory PE lessons as a kid. Clearly, the, ruling this global superpower was an incredibly difficult job, requiring a great deal of care and attention. Commodus had been born in the purple, a reference to the imperial robes. Purple dye was insanely expensive. It was only obtainable in tiny quantities via the secretions of a small snail when startled. Yes, professional snail bothering was actually a lucrative career in the Roman Empire. Being born in the purple meant that Commodus had been trained for his entire life to take on the great responsibility of empire. But Commodus didn't really want to be an emperor. He wanted to be a gladiator. So, there's no way I'm getting through this podcast without mentioning the film Gladiator, with that master of global accents, Russell Crowe. I have a bit of a thing for memorising, or at least trying to memorise, long speeches from pop culture, so that I can use them when the context demands it. Yes, as you can imagine, I don't have that many loyal friends. And, along with some of the rants from American Psycho, this one is really fun. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. See, what what, what social occasion can you not use that at? Anyway, of course, the film is historically inaccurate. For a start, spoiler alert, if you believe what happens in Gladiator, there is no Roman Empire after Commodus, and the Republic is immediately restored. So it does kind of skip 300 years of Roman history in the West, and more than a thousand in the East, which would later become the Byzantine Empire. But uh, never mind, you know, it's a good film. And everyone remembers Marcus Aurelius as the kindly old guy who gets murdered by Joaquin Phoenix. And the more exposure people get to Stoic philosophy, the better the world is going to be in general. Although Marcus never actually said anything about smiling back at death in real life, but I digress. Lucius Aurelius Commodus, as he was called initially, was born on the 31st of August, AD 161, at Lanuvian, roughly 14 miles southeast of Rome. Of the 14 children of Marcus Aurelius and his wife Faustina, Commodus was the 10th. He was born one of twins. The Historia Augusta says, Faustina, when pregnant with Commodus and his brother, dreamed that she gave birth to serpents, one of which, however, was fiercer than the other. Although, to be honest with you, ancient histories very rarely report any birth without either good or bad omens. If you're the kind of person who believes that the great trends and forces of history don't really care much about how many eggs were in an eagle's nest, or whether the milkman mysteriously disappeared the Tuesday before, Faustina and the Dream of Serpents probably won't impress you that much. Commodus's twin brother died when he was only four years old. The imperial wealth was no bar to the ways of the ancient world, where life was cheap and the people were easily deprived of it. The words of the Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius might seem a little bit miserable to us today, when he says, Human life 
Duration, momentary. Nature, changeable. Perception, dim. Condition of body, decaying. Soul, spinning around. Fortune, unpredictable. Lasting fame, uncertain. In summary, the body and its parts are a river. The soul, a dream and mist. Life is warfare and a journey far from home. Lasting reputation is oblivion. End quote. Okay, so maybe it is a little bit close to the poetry I wrote when I was 14, but, you know, rejection can be hard on a teenage boy, or an adult even. Moving on. Commodus received a first-rate education, and Herodian said that Marcus summoned learned men from across the empire to live in Rome and tutor his heir, but their teachings didn't seem to make much of an impact on the young man. Although he's been viewed in history as one of the worst emperors of all time, the ancient historians don't go quite as far in attacking Commodus' character as you might expect. And, you know, these are the same people who don't often hold back on their enemies. I mean, they'll accuse anyone you like of incest or all kinds of horrendous crimes if they don't like them. But Cassius Dio, for example, absolves Commodus of a little responsibility. He says, quote, This man, Commodus, was not naturally wicked, but, on the contrary, was as guileless as any man that ever lived. His great simplicity, however, together with his cowardice, made him the slave of his companions, and it was through them that he at first, out of ignorance, missed the better life, and was then led on into lustful and cruel habits, which soon became second nature. End quote. So here he gets something of a pass for being led astray while his father was away fighting the Germanic tribes. Maybe it's because all the historians loved Marcus so much, and they loved him so intensely, that they just can't believe that his son was so incompetent despite Marcus's best efforts to educate him. Commodus was 19 when his father died, and the responsibility of empire fell to him. On one level, you can probably argue that most people's characters are quite well developed by the time they get to be 19 years of age. It would already have been clear to everyone that Commodus was far more likely to spend his nights drinking in taverns than painstakingly writing books by candlelight about being a better person like his father did. At the same time, with all the hereditary leaders who take charge for at the young age, you have to consider what you and the people you know were like at that age. Me, for example, I knew a lot about statistical mechanics, but not a great deal of anything else. In Roman history, and in imperial systems in general, often the worst rulers are youngest when they come to power. But Commodus was surrounded by Marcus's old cadre of senators. It's not impossible that he could have chosen some of the worthier candidates to take on some of the responsibility of government. It's just that he didn't seem interested by it. As soon as Marcus's funeral was over, Commodus ended the war with the Germanic tribes. This was despite attempts by Pompeianus, a senator who'd worked closely with Marcus during the recent war, to persuade him to stay. Now, this is usually presented as an abdication of responsibility. Maybe Commodus was more interested in returning to the comforts and taverns of the capital than the hard work of defending the empire's frontiers. But there were valid reasons to end the war. What with the Antonine Plague having devastated the legions, and the fact that many of Marcus's campaigns had been successful in subduing some of the more aggressive tribes, Rome was in a good position. The peace settlement didn't involve anything humiliating like ceding any territory, and the defeated tribes gave up some of their arms to Rome and in some cases paid them tribute later on. So, if nothing else, at least the young man didn't prove himself to be a terrible negotiator, at least at first. Commodus was also obliged to give the army the standard payment that they expected on the accession of a new emperor. And yes, the fact that the army gets paid a bonus every time the emperor dies is not exactly a great precedent. At this point in Roman history, the office was well respected enough that the army didn't just decide to liquidate emperors and cash in for their money, but Commodus would soon see to that respect. According to Herodian, the first two years of Commodus' reign were pretty quiet, with the young man generally sticking to the advice of his father's chosen advisers. But everything changed when the Senate attacked. In Commodus' time, although they hadn't been in charge for some hundreds of years, the Senate still met. They still doled out largely ceremonial offices like the consulship. The consuls were those who had run Rome back in the Republican era. It was still the hunting ground of rich and influential men, 
and, due to the adoptions of the five good emperors, some of those men had become emperors themselves. Usually, it was helpful to have some connection to the imperial family already. That's what happened for Hadrian. The details of this episode are a little bit sketchy, because our sources contradict each other. What they agree on is that early in Commodus' reign, there was some kind of assassination attempt on the emperor. Cassius Dio, who's generally considered the most reliable historian, says that Pompeianus himself brandished a dagger at the emperor, dramatically proclaiming, This is what the Senate has sent you! Herodian goes down the classic blame-the-woman roots of historians, both ancient and modern, and pins it all on Pompeianus' wife, Lucilla, Commodus' own sister. According to Herodian, she used her feminine guile to charm a young nobleman into murdering Commodus. Unfortunately, in this telling, her man is something of a dud. Quote, The assassin drew his dagger and shouted at Commodus that he had been sent by the Senate to kill him. He wasted time making his little speech and waving his dagger, and as a result he was seized by the Emperor's bodyguards before he could strike, and died for his stupidity in revealing the plot prematurely. End quote. Clearly Roman senators weren't up on the plot of your average Bond movie. If you're going to kill someone, the less time you spend pontificating about the details of your scheme and making a scene, the more likely you are to succeed. Roose Bolton had it right in Game of Thrones. If you must engage in amateur dramatics in the middle of an assassination, keep it down to one pithy line. From my perspective, Pompeianus was indeed linked to the imperial family. He might have been seen as a natural successor. Supposedly, he was offered the title of Caesar to become Marcus's heir during the Marcomannic Wars against the Germanic tribes, but he turned it down. The historians paint him as loyal, but more to Marcus than to Commodus. Maybe he was bitter about being overruled when Commodus wanted to end the war prematurely. As with so many things from this long ago, we can't know for sure. It does seem unlikely that Pompeianus personally brandished a dagger at Commodus, given that he wasn't executed afterwards. At the same time, it sort of seems unlikely that he didn't know what his wife was up to either, if it was all her fault. But the way that his history went is that Lucilla was executed, and Pompeianus quickly retired to the Italian countryside. It's one of those situations where he was either complicit in the plot, or quite incompetent not to notice it. But what we do know for sure is that the plot failed, and Commodus grew distant from his senatorial advisers, suspecting them of knowing about the plot. At this point in his career, I do feel a little bit sorry for the guy. Yes, we associate autocrats with being paranoid, but in Commodus's case, his paranoia is not in completely unfounded. They really were out to get him at the start. The paranoia, though, manifested itself in the form of a purge. I think probably in the course of this series we end up using this word a lot. Executing dissidents is quite moorish for dictators. It's a good way to deter people. The other important thing to consider is that most dictators have a cabal of advisers, underlings, minions, something like that, and they're all constantly jockeying for position and power. So if the dictator's executing a whole set of traitors, it's a very good opportunity for you to get rid of one or two of your enemies by throwing them under the bus. Dio portrays the senators that Commodus has killed as innocent, and most of them probably were, but there was precedent in Roman history for senators who controlled large armies to revolt against the emperor and depose him. Indeed, when Nero died, three generals tried to do this at once, which led to a civil war called the Year of the Four Emperors. There's a fun story in Cassius Dio about one of Commodus's would-be victims who fashioned an ingenious escape. The story goes that he drank hare's blood, then dramatically fell from his horse and vomited up the blood, convincing everyone that he was dying of some horrendous illness. After effectively faking his own death to avoid the emperor's wrath, he went into hiding, and, although a vast hunt for the fugitive was ordered throughout the empire, it seems like he might have gotten away with it. After the first wave of executions had been completed, Commodus needed to regroup. Many of his old advisers and generals were dead, and the rest of them he no longer really trusted. It was at this point that he fell into a trope that a lot of autocrats tend to fall into, especially the ones who are no longer interested in the work of government. 
delegating everything to a favourite. Now, back when Tiberius was emperor of Rome, he had a favourite that he delegated everything to, Sejanus, and that didn't work out too well for him, because Sejanus eventually led a conspiracy to try and overthrow Tiberius. Now, the man Commodus chose was Perennus, who was the chief of the imperial bodyguard, the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorians really are a fascinating group in Roman history. So we've already talked about the fact that the soldiers expected a bonus whenever a new emperor came to power, which effectively incentivised them to use violence against the emperors. Now if you scroll through a list of Roman emperor causes of death, which is a hobby of mine, no fewer than 13 of them were murdered by their own bodyguards, and in one infamous episode, the Praetorian Guard actually auctioned off the imperial throne to the highest bidder. Which isn't massively different to how a lot of modern elections pan out, but I digress. Even Perennis getting this job has a hint of scandal. The previous head of the bodyguard was executed by Commodus for killing one of Commodus's favourites, and possibly one of Commodus's lovers. So what was Commodus doing when Perennis was running all of the business of Rome? Well, Commodus spent a lot of time outside of the scheming senatorial snake pit of Rome, indulging in his love of chariot racing and gladiatorial combat in lavish estates outside of the capital city. It wasn't all bad being the king. Perennis used the opportunity of the emperor's paranoia to have a few of his enemies and rivals executed, and then settled into running the empire, or killing all of his rivals and confiscating their wealth, depending on how scandalous an imperial history you want to believe. The Historia Augusta, for example, describes Perennis like this, quote, He slew whomsoever he wished to slay, plundered a great number, violated every law, and put all the booty into his own pocket. End quote. But it's difficult to believe everything in the Historia Augusta, partly because it's been at least partially discredited as a source, and also because it spends the rest of the paragraph talking about how Commodus had 300 concubines, debauched his sisters, and named one of his wives after his own mother. It's like the scandal-rag news of the world of ancient sources. As for Perennis, he was clearly a ruthless man, and chances are one word from him could mean death for you or your family. But the empire ran fairly smoothly under his rule. In the meantime, Commodus was getting acquainted with a new favourite, a former slave named Cleander. This is one of the interesting aspects of autocratic rule that Commodus really sort of emphasises. Purely based on personal favour and trust, people can be plucked from relative obscurity and placed in incredibly powerful positions. Now when this happens, they leapfrog a whole echelon of people working their political careers and temp attempting to accrue power and influence underneath. When this happens, the lucky favourite leapfrogs a whole echelon of people who have been working their political careers and attempting to accrue power and influence underneath. You can imagine all the wealthy, worthy senators gnashing their teeth in frustration at having to bow and scrape to a former slave. And because our histories are so often written by the senators, such figures are often demonised. That said, it doesn't seem like Cleander was the most upstanding of citizens, and he was certainly immediately scheming to get rid of Perennis as soon as he could. He saw his opportunity in 184, four years into Commodus's solo reign. The story goes that Commodus was attending some games in Rome when he received a dire warning. The historian Herodian said, quote, Upon his arrival for the performance of the famous actors, Commodus took his seat in the imperial chair. An orderly crowd filled the theatre, quietly occupying the assigned seats. Before any action took place on the stage, however, a man dressed as a philosopher, half-naked, carrying a staff in his hand and a leather bag on his shoulder, ran out and took his stand in the centre of the stage. Silencing the audience with a dramatic sweep of his hand, he said, Commodus, this is no time to celebrate festivals and devote yourself to shows and entertainments. The sword of Perennis is at your throat. Unless you guard yourself from a danger not threatening but already upon you, you shall not escape death. Perennis himself is raising money and an army to oppose you, and his sons are winning over the army of Illyricum. Unless you act first, you shall die. 
Now initially, Commodus wasn't very grateful for this warning, and apparently he had that philosopher burned to death for treason. But the seeds of doubt had been sown, and then some soldiers came to Commodus, apparently showing him coins that had been minted with the face of Perennis on them. Now that's an honour that's usually reserved only for the emperor. This was the last straw, and Commodus became convinced that Perennis wanted to overthrow him and take the throne for himself. The prefect was executed, and Cleander, probably struggling to hide his grin, solemnly took over the duties of government, and began to run amuck. In the ancient Roman Republic, in the time before the Empire, society was held in a strange sort of equilibrium. The system was filled with ambitious, conniving, scheming politicians. But they were also contained within a very strict hierarchy. You started your public career. Once you'd been a public servant for so many years, you were able to be elected to another higher office, and then the next one. The system of rankings was called the Cursus Honorum. Right at the top was the consulship. In the Republic, this was the absolute pinnacle of your career, the ultimate ambition of every young nobleman trying to climb up the ranks. But they all had to play by the rules and go through the proper order of officers in the Cursus Honorum. Romans would have rooms in their houses where they displayed wax figures, portraits of the previous illustrious men in their family who had attained the consulship. Even when the emperors took over real power, being made consul was still a huge honour that people competed over. Cleander realised this and exploited this by selling all of these political officers to the highest bidder. If you had the money, you could buy your way into being a senator, a governor of a province, even being in charge of a large army. Most of the cash went straight into Cleander's pocket, although he did spend some of it on public baths and a grain dole for the citizens. Although he did spend some of it on public baths and a grain dole for the citizens. It seems to me like there's a sniff of demagoguery to this. Cleander probably feared retribution from the senators since he was making a mockery of the offices they held so dear. But, if he could retain his support amongst the masses, he'd be able to continue this insane and immensely lucrative scheme of auctioning off all the public officers of the Roman Empire for longer, and he could use the mob to intimidate his opponents. After all, in Rome they outnumbered the wealthy senators. And, of course, why would you sell an office just once when you can sell it, kill the poor sap who just bought it off you for, uh, treason, and then put it back on the market again? It's hard to think of a modern equivalent beyond maybe a president selling off cabinet positions or governorships of various states. In the year 190, under Cleander, there were 25 consuls instead of the usual two, and that's an all-time record for the Roman system. But then again, it's naive to assume this kind of thing hasn't always happened behind closed doors. In fact, I'm sure a lot of you remember in the UK there was a cash for honours scandal where some people who had loaned large amounts of money to the ruling Labour Party were, probably by coincidence, made into lords. Although, there's no record of Tony Blair ordering hits on people so that he could sell the lordships again. Maybe he just didn't think of it? The main thing to think about here is the sheer levels of administrative chaos that must have arisen due to Cleander's actions. Not only were half the people in their various roles unqualified, they also were hardly in position long enough to effect any changes. One head of the bodyguard was supposedly in office only for five days. And in the course of selling offices, Cleander became the richest freedman that the Empire had ever seen. His play for becoming a true demagogue by spending some of his lavish wealth on the public was not successful, however. There's an old saying that goes, any society is three meals away from anarchy, and this was true in Rome as well. Residents in the city had a free supply of grain that they came to rely on completely. Any threats to the grain supply were taken very seriously, and they were an issue of national security. That's why the emperor personally administered the province of Egypt, because Egypt was where most of the grain came from. Under Cleander, the grain supply got cut off. Some historians, like Dio, say that one of Cleander's rivals bought up all of the available grain and stockpiled it, attempting to frame Cleander in order to bring about his destruction. Whether this is true or not, 
Cleander obviously had a reputation for greed, because the general public became convinced that he was keeping food from them. Gibbon, in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, puts it like this. The people quitted their various amusements for the more delicious pleasure of revenge, rushed in crowds towards a palace in the suburbs, one of the emperor's retirements, and demanded, with angry clamours, the head of the public enemy. End quote. Cleander, probably panicking, ordered a cavalry charge to disperse the mob. This pushed them back some way, but soon they were amongst the city streets. Urban warfare was not unheard of in Rome. Citizens ripped tiles from roofs and threw stones at onrushing horses. As well as this, foot soldiers who were jealous about how Cleander lavished wealth on his favourites joined up with the mob. Soon they were once again attacking the imperial palace. Commodus, for once, was actually in the palace at the time. Most of the historians report that he was lounging about, blissfully unaware of the carnage in the city outside. This is not uncommon amongst bloodthirsty dictators, because, let's face it, who wants to be the one to go into his palace and tell him that there's a bit of a kerfuffle outside? That could mean death for you. You think of Hitler in his bunker, surrounded by yes-men, unwilling to listen to criticism, believing that vast fictional reinforcements were going to arrive and sweep his enemies away. As ever, it took some imperial women to sort it out, with the emperor's sister telling him what had happened. Commodus wasted absolutely no time in throwing Cleander under the bus, he was executed and his head was thrown out to the baying mob, which seemed to appease them. After killing a few of Cleander's more unpopular associates, they dispersed. Of course, this leaves Commodus in a bit of a bind. Cleander and Perennis before him had pretty much handled the entire business of running the state while he was off indulging his passions for sports and so on. Now, for the first time, Commodus decided to take the reins of government for himself. As you can probably imagine based on what we've seen of his conduct so far, this didn't end well. He began killing senators almost indiscriminately. It was usual imperial policy for emperors to hint that they might be connected to the gods. This kind of thing foreshadows the divine right of kings that would dominate Europe as a doctrine for so long in the Middle Ages. Commodus, though, took this to whole new levels, declaring that he was Hercules reincarnated, the son of Jupiter, who was the chief god in the Roman pantheon. He had many hundreds of statues built that depicted himself as Hercules. It's said that he built a statue opposite the Senate House with himself as an archer, poised to shoot at any moment. So, you know, points for subtlety in your political imagery there. All references to his actual ancestry from Marcus Aurelius started to be replaced by these divine images. I guess divinity was something more fluid in a society where there was more than one god, and for many years dead Roman emperors had been deified, but you can imagine the controversy that would be caused nowadays if a political leader declared themselves to be the second coming of Jesus, for example. In 191, there was a fire that damaged many of the major public buildings in Rome, it seemed like Commodus saw this as an opportunity to refound the city in his own image. The megalomania reached almost hilarious heights. The city was renamed Commodia. The people and the legions were renamed Commodians. All of the months of the year were renamed after the titles he'd given himself. Lucius, Aelius, Aurelius, Commodus, Augustus, Herculeus, Romanus, Ex-Supertorius, Amazonius, Invictus, Felix, Pius. That is to say... The August, the Hercules, the Roman, the Conquering, the Amazon, the Unconquered, the Lucky, the Holy Commodus. You know, at least he didn't tack Modest onto the end of that. The Senate, in one final dig, was renamed Commodus's Fortunate Senate, and I bet they felt like it. Oh, and the day when he announced all of these changes? Well, that was now a public holiday. Yeah, you guessed it. Commodus Day. I mentioned at the start that Commodus probably wanted to be a gladiator more than he really wanted to be an emperor. This was, of course, scandalous for the Romans, because gladiators were usually slaves, and their theatre was considered a base and lowly thing to be interested in. It just wasn't dignified. But Commodus was actually, by all accounts, a very skilled fighter. 
The movie Gladiator probably underestimates the antics of Commodus in the arena, at least according to the ancient historians. Some of these more lurid escapades may at least be partially fictional, so take them all with a pinch of salt. It's said that he charged a million sesterces to the city for every time he appeared in the arena. Of course, killing the emperor in single combat was probably a bad career move for you, so opponents tended to submit to him when they fought, and Commodus would often murder them anyway. He was skilled with a bow and arrow, but sometimes nothing beats the pleasure of smashing people's skulls in with Hercules' club. He reportedly asked for wounded soldiers and amputees to be placed in the arena. Commodus would club them to death while pretending to be a giant. He loved to hunt exotic animals, which were brought from all corners of the empire for his amusement. Herodian reports some of these antics. Once, when a leopard with a lightning dash seized a condemned criminal, he thwarted the leopard with his javelin as it was about to close its jaws. He killed the beast and rescued the man, the point of the javelin anticipating the points of the leopard's teeth. Again, when a hundred lions appeared in one group as if from beneath the earth, he killed the entire hundred with exactly one hundred javelins, and the bodies all lay stretched out in a straight line for some distance. They could thus be counted with no difficulty, and no one saw a single extra javelin. End quote. There's even a story that he killed the giraffe in the arena. Although the crowd usually love the insane thrill of seeing their emperor personally killing lions in the arena, and I have to admit, it does sound really, really cool. I mean, can you imagine Theresa May doing that? The giraffe was pitied by the crowds, who considered it a strange and helpless beast. The Historia Augusta li- has a huge list of some of the more lurid allegations against Commodus's character. Well, I did say it was the news of the world of the ancient world. It even says, quote, It is claimed that he often mixed human excrement with the most expensive foods, and did not refrain from tasting them, mocking the rest of his company as he thought. He displayed two misshapen hunchbacks on a silver platter after smearing them with mustard, and then straight away advanced and enriched them. He pushed into a swimming pool his praetor prefect, Julianus. Although he was clad in a toga and accompanied by staff, he even ordered the same Julianus to dance naked before his concubines, clashing cymbals and making grimaces. The various kinds of cooked vegetables he rarely admitted to his banquets, the purpose being to preserve unbroken the succession of dainties. You've got to love the Historia Augusta. Enlisting Commodus' endless crimes against polite society, the murders and so on, it can't help but mention that he didn't eat his vegetables. Truly, he was a terrible person. Well, I advise you to go and read their chapter on Commodus if you want more salacious, unfounded gossip. Cassius Dio was actually there at these gladiatorial combats, and he mentions that all senators were required to attend. Only Pompeianus, who couldn't bear to see the son of Marcus disgracing his old friend, had his sons attend instead of him. He relates one particularly scary scene, quote, Having killed an ostrich and cut off its head, he came to where we were sitting, holding the head in his left hand and in his right hand raising aloft his bloody sword. And, although he spoke not a word, yet he wagged his head with a grin, indicating that he would treat us in the same way. And many would have indeed perished by the sword on the spot for laughing at him, for it was laughter rather than indignation that overcame us, if I had not chewed some laurel leaves, so that in the steady movement of my mouth I might conceal the fact that we were laughing. End quote. Commodus was clearly loving his life at this point, having descended completely into this gladiatorial fantasy. He had yet another statue built that described him as the first left-handed gladiator to kill 12,000 men. But the senators and many of the people of Rome were a little bit sickened by the spectacle of this man, who was supposed to be at the head of their society, disgracing himself like this, and it was clear to them that he was deranged. Apparently, the final straw was when he announced his plans to spend the New Year, a ceremonial occasion where the emperor traditionally named the new consuls from the steps of the imperial palace, in the gladiatorial barracks instead. He told his chief mistress, Marcia, about these plans, along with some other palace officials. The three of them begged and pleaded with him not to do anything further to disgrace himself, and put his life, quote, in the hands of gladiators and desperate men, end quote. 
Commodus, enraged with this, wrote himself a little to-do list. Kill Marcia and the palace officials. This is a bit of a common trope in Roman history. Whenever an emperor gets assassinated, the sympathetic historians usually make it seem as if the assassins were forced into action because the emperor was plotting to have them killed. Then they're in this position of, well, it's him or me. I guess in Commodus's case, it's not unreasonable. But the story that Commodus carelessly left his kill list just lying around is a little bit too much like Mean Girls. When Marcy discovered this death list, Herodian gives her a little speech. Quote, So, Commodus, this is my reward for my love and devotion, after I've put up with your arrogance and your madness for so many years. But you, you drunken sot, you shall not outwit a woman deadly sober. End quote. They attempted to poison Commodus at one of his many feasts, but he apparently recovered and threw up the poison. The conspirators decided, in for a penny, in for a pound, and promised to pay Commodus's wrestling partner, Narcissus, to kill Commodus. The weakened emperor fought back, but ultimately all of his gladiatorial skill could not save him, and he was strangled to death on New Year's Eve, 192. The Senate wasted no time in damning his memory, tearing down the statues and renaming the city. A successor, Pertinax, was chosen, but his reign wouldn't stick, and the empire would soon descend into a civil war called the Year of the Five Emperors, which probably tells you all you need to know about imperial stability after Commodus was out of the way. So what can we learn from Commodus and his life? It does seem like he's a classic example of a fairly ordinary person with no special talents going mad with power. When you think about it, there's something of a psychological cocktail that's common to monarchies. From birth, Commodus knew that one day he would likely rule the empire, the life his father, the Stoic philosopher Marcus, presented to him was a dour one of self-denial and duty. One can feel a certain amount of sympathy for him for not finding that especially attractive when he could, at any moment, snap his fingers and live out his gladiatorial fantasies instead of pen-pushing at a desk somewhere or freezing his butt off in a tent on the Rhine. This pattern of neglecting his duties led to a couple of people effectively ruling in his stead. One of them was ruthless and ambitious, but competent. The other one was bloodthirsty, avaricious and incompetent. When he took over in his own right, he entered a two-year spiral of debauchery that ended in being murdered not by a political rival, but by his own household. It had been a hundred years since the last emperor had died a violent death. Maybe that, and lingering loyalty to Marcus and to the dynasty, explain why Commodus was allowed to be in charge for so long. Yet there are mitigating circumstances. It seems a little bit unfair to put the decision to end the war purely down to Commodus's laziness. After all, he obtained a good peace settlement. The empire was weakened by the Antonine Plague, which can't have made the job of governing any easier. And, almost as soon as he returns to Rome as emperor for the first time, Commodus has to deal with an assassination attempt from the Senate, the supposedly wise men that his father must have hoped would counsel him. Perhaps if this hadn't happened, Commodus could have chosen better administrators to govern in his stead. At the same time, it's clear that by the end he allowed his megalomania to take over completely, and he never had any real, sustained interest in running the government well. And it led to his death. I mentioned that Commodus was a young man when he took charge. I think there's another interesting parallel life to look at. Many years later, after the civil wars, a young man named Alexander Severus rose to the rank of emperor. Now he was just 13 years old, and he'd also been born into an imperial family, just like Commodus. But unlike him, he listened to those around him, and was generally considered a good and conscientious ruler. Perhaps this, more than anything else, illustrates the advantages and the perils of a hereditary autocracy. So much depends on the quirks of the personality of the autocrat. In Commodus's case, maybe if he'd been born into an ordinary family, he could have pursued his gladiatorial dreams. Instead, the weight of empire was thrust on him, and he was found lacking. Could you honestly say that the same might not happen to you? I'm going to round off this episode with a quote that I found while looking through meditations to find a nice quote that proved Marcus Aurelius was gloomy. Like a lot of Stoicism, it's a little simplistic and sometimes infuriating in the constant mantra of mind over matter, 
I mean, why should I take that from you, a Roman emperor, the wealthiest man in your society? But sometimes when you're worrying about things that you can't control, you might find some solace in the idea of overcoming it by sheer mental fortitude. And there's a copy of Meditations in my college library I used to read a lot when difficult problems needed to be done. So, to take it away, here's Marcus. Do not disturb yourself by picturing your life as a whole. Do not assemble in your mind the many and varied troubles which have come to you in the past, and will come again in the future. But ask yourself, with regard to every present difficulty, what is there in this that is unbearable and beyond endurance? You would be ashamed to confess it. And then remind yourself that it is not the future or what is past that afflicts you, always the present. And the power of this is much diminished if you take it in isolation. End quote. So, until the next time we're together, I hope that you survive every present moment in our isolation, even if you have to endure some of them. Thanks for listening. Any feedback and support is gratefully appreciated. Visit our website at autocracynowpodcast.wordpress.com and please like us and rate us and review us on iTunes, all of which help get the podcast noticed. Our theme music is The Spirit of Russian Love by Zinadia Trokai, and you can find her stuff at costat.bandcamp.com. That's K-O-S-T-A.bandcamp.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode.